in your Bibles to the book of James. The theme of this book and series that we're going to bring out is to be wholehearted in our worship of Christ. Wholehearted in our devotion to Jesus. Um, and every once in a while you, you hear uh, a confession. We live in the day and age where on any given month, there will be a public confession after a public accusation condemnation involving some scandal. Um, typically, you may hear someone say to the people that he loves, this act that has been revealed publicly, this scandal that I've been involved in, of which I am greatly ashamed and grieved over and understand the pain and hurt that I've caused, understand that this act does not define me. This is not who I am. You've heard that phrase? <clears throat> this scandal, this is not who I am. Uh, when Matt, Laura, Matt Lyre was... Um, uh, revealed everything that was revealed about him and, and his co-workers were trying to reconcile the mat they knew with the mat that was revealed in these stories and they could not reconcile these two images. This is what we talk about being fragmented. Our heart is inconsistent with itself. We say that we are one thing, we want to be something, and yet there are times and situations where we are the exact opposite. The book of James was written to help us to be wholehearted, not fragmented, to expose to us fragmented parts of who we are, where there are not parts that line up correctly with what we say that Jesus is Lord. And we'll see throughout the whole book that there are certain scenes, certain activities that will reveal us and show us for who we are. With the hope, with the prayer, with the Word of God to say, be wholehearted under Christ. And so we're going to start that theme looking in James chapter 1, uh, looking uh, all the way from verse 1 through verse 8. It uh, the, goes on, this theme goes on to verse 12 as we look at trials and the role of trials and adversities with dealing with our whole heart. And that uh, James is simply bringing out that this is a really good thing. Uh, as we read this letter, I uh, notice it starts James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and uh, you need to know that traditionally, historically, People believe that this is James, or Jacob, the brother of Jesus. Now there are a few James in the Bible, uh, but there are several things that suggest that this is indeed the brother of Jesus. Uh, you see this character referred a few times. Of course, there's James, the brother of John. Um, we know that this isn't that one because James was the first disciple to get killed right off the bat uh, by Herod. Uh, and so even in Acts, we see his death. And, and so we know that it was not him. Uh, then there's James, the son of Alphaeus, another disciple of, uh, of Jesus. And, and so we think, well, maybe it's him. Well, I just want to bring out a few things that suggest that it's probably James, the brother 
of Jesus. First of all, uh, you see references to the brothers of Jesus. This would have been the younger brother of Jesus. Um, why? Well, because the Bible says that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, okay? So consequently, any other siblings come after Jesus. And so this was the young brother of Jesus. And I just take note of that when you see the very first line. The young brother of Jesus says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know how hard it is for the young brother to say the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have a young brother, you know that their main mission, I speak this as a younger brother, that my main mission in life, growing from about zero to, um, well, about 16 when my sister left home, was to irritate the mess out of my sister. My main mission in life, all right? Fortunately, I grew up a little bit, but I still get to have those passions every once in a while. But here's the little brother of Jesus saying, this is the Lord. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a servant of him. Now, uh, we see some references uh, first in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Uh, I'm going to flip quickly through some of these passages so you can kind of get a glimpse of this one. Uh, Matthew 13, 55. The crowds are there in Nazareth with Jesus. And the crowds say, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And, not all, and are not all his sisters where, with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So we have reference here in Nazareth of James as well as quite a few other siblings there. We know that as Jesus lived this ministry in his three years of public ministry, that the brothers really didn't go along with Jesus. In fact, there's a, a passage that says they regarded him as out of his mind in that time period. But a few other things happen. By the time we get to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, this is after the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension. It says in Acts 1.14, all these with one accord referring to the disciples were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Something happened between the public years of Jesus' ministry and this moment in Acts 1.14. 1 Corinthians 15.7 gives us a clue. 1 Corinthians 15.7 refers to Jesus making appearances after the resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15, 7 said that Jesus had a one-on-one with his brother, James. Now, regardless of whatever sibling rivalry has happened, all sibling rivalries drop when your brother resurrects from the dead. It's all settled. It doesn't matter who hit who or whatever first. Every rivalry is settled at that time. And so now, James is there with the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. In Acts 15, verse 12 through 21, we realize that James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The brother James. And so he is brought in on disputes dealing with the Jerusalem council. And he speaks into this. Peter, or Paul says that he didn't meet other disciples after receiving some explanation, revelation from Jesus, save James. It was the exception. So you've got Paul and Peter and John 
and James as the four big leaders in the church and James being the primary one in Jerusalem. Now we also know that in that time period while James is leading in that church that Jerusalem goes through a major famine. In fact, Paul is gathering churches from Macedonia and other places to gather funds to support them in this famine. And so James is pastoring a large, growing church, multiplying, dealing with strife and dealing with famine. But he was faithful to the end. We know from tradition that he did not recount uh, or um, discredit Jesus Christ, though he was pressured, brought up to the pinnacle of the temple, pressuring him uh, about discounting Jesus Christ. And he said, why do you ask me about the Son of Man? You will see him ascended down from heaven. And at this, the Jews get so angry, they push him off the pinnacle of the temple. And that's how James dies. So, before he dies, he writes this letter. We believe it's James, this brother, because he is the guy in Jerusalem. He doesn't have to say James, this one. He just says, I'm James. And everyone knows. By first name, this is James, the brother of Jesus. So know that as he is speaking to us about what does it mean to be wholehearted following Jesus. So let's stand as we read together this passage. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, the Jews scattered all over the place, and now believers in Christ. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may per- be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He may be seated. So, as we come to verse 2, there's a lot to be said and perhaps maybe hard to believe. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. This seems like an absurd statement. I would first make some observations, and this one is very simple. Trials are certain. When we read verse 1, notice the phrasing there. He doesn't have the condition if. If you face trials of various kinds, but rather it's just flat out when it happens. When it happens... When you face trials of various kinds. So my first observation as we read this passage is that trials are certain. I would want you to note that he says various trials. And, and so we're not just talking about uh, challenges of your spiritual life. It's talking about various 
trials, whether it's social trials that you have dealing with people, whether it's things with your job and the oppositions of working with your job. It could be your physical body and the trials that come with that. And as you get old, trials will come with your body. It's a matter of time. Uh, It could be certainly the spiritual trials of opposition of those around you as you are, uh, could be financial trials. In fact, as you look through your life, short or long, you probably can list out what some trials have been. What is interesting, as you grow, the definition of your trials may change as you grow. But understand that when we are believers... We are not stepping into a blessed zone where there is freedom from challenges, adversities, trials. In fact, if anything, as you read in the Word of God, you are stepping into the troubleful zone. From the Word of Jesus Christ, he, uh, this passage of Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy that if anyone desires to follow Christ Jesus, they will endure persecution. That is going to happen. If you live a godly life. And so we are stepping into a zone filled with troubles. So so James knows that. He's aware of that. He is speaking and pastoring a church in the midst of a famine where it's hard just to eat. And he says, when this happens, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so just simply note, trials are certain. It's going to happen. Second, in that same phrase, Verse 2, count it all joys, my brothers. I would say to you that your perspective matters. Your perspective matters. In times of suffering, it will be the make and break of your life. And as we read this, not only does perspective matter, a specific perspective matters. Notice what he says. Count it. That is a command. Count it, consider it, think through it, and regard what you are going through with joy. So, it makes you want to say, what do you mean by joy? What is that? Surely it means something than what I'm thinking. What's the secret? Well, simply is that you're going to have hope in the midst of this. And, and an anticipated hope, and an excited hope of what will be, what will happen, even as you're going through, and as a believer, I would say because of what you're going through. You know, hedonism is that philosophy that says, well, you know, let's avoid all the problems and just have fun. It captures much of the state of, of American society. Just be happy. I was reading uh, that uh, the children's book of America versus the children's book of China. The main thing of the children's book of China is be industrious, work hard. The main theme of children's book is be happy, be happy. Uh, and so it's, it's inbred within our society as Americans that is just be happy. But joy is, is to say that there is an excited anticipation even with what we're going through. Hedonism isn't just, uh, it's not just say I'm going to live for pleasure and, and avoid all the pain. And then there's stoicism that says, well, we just endure suffering and we endure the trials and we do it with a, uh, a British face, you know. We're just going to be just really calm and collected, not panic. And then there's the machoism, embrace the suffering. 
all right, embrace it. And, and so it's when you go working out and, and you have the, the guys around you and they say, well, this just stinks, this workout. And they say, well, embrace it. What we have with Christianity is not embracing it, but to say that Christ uses suffering. He redeems suffering, that something magical, something amazing happens even in that. And so this is something we do by faith. And so he's simply saying, count it all joy. Your perspective matters as you go into what your attitude is. If you have a honeymoon couple and you take them to one room and they look at the room and say, here is your room for the night, and they walk away and say, this stinks. I'm not staying here. And you have someone coming out of prison and you say to them, that same room and say, here's your room. And that same person is overjoyed. What? What's the difference? Well, the honeymoon couple has a certain expectation of where they ought to be. And that room doesn't fit. And their perspective makes the world of difference, does it not? And so how you think about the sufferings and trials that you go through really does matter. So that being said, count it all joy, my brothers. We need an explanation for why we should count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. James, how do you explain this? How can you look at this? And in the famine you've gone through, how can you say to have joy in this? What's your reasoning? Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If you're like me, you're kind of looking for something else there. Really? That's the reason why I got to count this as joy? James, well, this is going to produce steadfastness in you that there is a testing of your faith understand that when you see trials you see adversities maybe it's people aren't getting along as a church we understand that we've experienced this but all along in the midst of all these things god is still saying there's a test there's a test and what we are enduring what we are experiencing and he's testing for faith To produce a steadfastness. There is something that God is looking for. As we read the book of Job, we saw how God was looking for something in the challenges of what he was going through. And so too, James is saying God is looking for something. And this endurance, that word literally means to remain under. Or to hyper stand firm. To continue in those experiences and let it continue until it has its work being done. Now, you know what we like to do when it gets hard, right? The natural response is, let's stop. Let's get out of here. Let's cease the pain. Let's find the pleasure. Help me to keep my pain from going on. When people are working out, they have uh, some of the trainers might push you and say, you need to get to total muscle failure. <laughs> Sounds terrible. It is. They say, well, you keep on pushing the weight until you start trembling. That's a sign that things are going well. <laughs> are you kidding me? I say, well, you keep on pushing and trembling until you get to the point where you're pushing with all your might and the weight's not going anywhere. And you do that for 10 seconds. Those are the most agonizing, longest 10 seconds of your life. And they say, if it's at that point, if you can just remain under that, then your muscles are breaking down and they're doing healthy things. They're getting stronger and better. And, but you have to remain under that pain. 
there is an, a, a thought here of what Scripture is saying is that God is doing something in the suffering, in the trial, but there is a, a tendency of God to hold on to God and not just look for deliverance out of what you're going through. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be, get this, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. This is where we go to that idea of wholehearted. The sufferings, the trials, will expose the divided loyalties in our heart. Where we tend to go to those things for ease, for comfort, for some relief. But now these things have been exposed. Or or maybe they're being taken from us. And we're having to lean on God. Where maybe we once leaned on a person. Or leaned on a potential. On a job. On a circumstance. On some identity that was not right for us to lean on. The tendency is to quickly go away from that. I've talked with others in times when there's been challenges among people. And the quick solution is, I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to get out of this dynamic. It's, it's unhealthy. And there is a role for that. But I think that perhaps maybe we need to filter through that more carefully than we tend to. Our quick solution is, I'm going to get out of the toxic environment. I understand that but every once in a while god will allow circumstance to go where there is no running away from the toxic environment because all along the way god is teaching you how to breathe the pure oxygen of his goodness and sovereignty and his love that you won't grasp for unless there is the challenge and trials i've talked with some who quickly have went away, met up with them two to three years later and talked with them, with them. And I realized and talked with them that they were stuck three years ago because they didn't give voice or give room for God to work into the heart in the midst of the challenge of people around them. And so they just had it simmering in their heart and their mind and they couldn't get past it. It remained because they could not see how God's goodness and his wisdom was working in the midst of everything. I would just encourage you and challenge you in that to to understand what it is that there's only some things that can be learned on the other side of endurance. But that's not always the case. There's this if here. You've seen people go through hard times, and instead of them making them better, they become bitter. You've heard that phrasing. What's the difference? Why do some people go through hardships, and they're sweet, and they're patient, and they're loving, and they're wise, and some people go through hardships, and instead they're angry, they're unforgiving, they're resentful, and it's always just on the, under the edge of the surface, ready to flow out. What's important here? There's heart growth on the other side of endurance if we ask for wisdom, for joy in the suffering. If we ask for wisdom, for joy in the suffering. You you can't separate what he says here in verse 5 with the idea that this is in the midst of trials and suffering. That there is a special wisdom that is needed to know how to go through 
this time. I would just say to you that Americans, I speak as American, we are breeding and nurturing a generation of people that's specially inept at suffering. Specially inept at patience. I was talking with our students and uh, earlier, just some things I had come across, I'd heard uh, a, a book called uh, Teens and Screens Connecting with Our Kids in a Wireless World by Kathy Cook. And she said there's all the benefits that come with technology, but with it also are a few lies that we are assuming with just having a phone. One, we are believing a lie that I am to be happy all the time. I am to be happy all the time. If things get a little dull, a little slow, well, there's 10,000 videos I can look at. And some of them have kittens. You know? There's images and there's statements from others. There's games we can play that I am to be happy all the time. That the worst thing that could possibly happen in my day is not to be amused. We tend to believe a lie that the world revolves around me. With the use of technology, sharing with the students, imagine there was a day and time when in my home growing up, if the phone rang, someone had answered it. Why? Well, we didn't have caller ID. Never knew if this was an emergency or telemarketer, whether it was for dad, for mom, for me, or my sister. And so someone got in trouble if we didn't answer the phone. Now, oh, I don't know them. They can leave a voicemail. Anonymous caller? I don't think so. We can choose. And so world is, is starting to revolve around us. Uh, around us, we, we, we used to have to listen to a song on the radio. If we want to hear it again, we had to record it. Or we had to buy an album with 10 songs we didn't like so we could listen to the one song. Now, I want to listen to a song. There's an app for that. We play it. Playlist is, is revolved. We, we're starting to believe the lie that we deserve choice. Because every website we go to has a drop-down menu. Right? And so we ought to have choice. And so we're nurturing that. We're, we're uh, being exposed constantly to this idea that we are believing that we are the moral authorities because so many of them have failed. Politicians, the teachers, the leaders of all sorts that uh, I can just choose my own things and I get all of my information leads to the final lie that we tend to believe is that we, uh, well, information is all that we need. I don't need teachers. I can Google anything I want. There's a Google University that I can, I can do any subject. Information is all I need. I used to have called my dad to figure out how to fix a lawnmower. Now I've got a YouTube video. We don't need the teachers. But there's some things that technology cannot teach. My phone won't teach me humility. My phone can't teach me compassion. Technology cannot teach me what freedom is. And information does not teach me faith. Some of the valuable things that make us cannot be made 
just because I have a phone. So God introduces this concept of suffering where a phone won't work. Have you ever been in the midst of an emergency room waiting? And someone's in a life-death situation? The games on the phone don't do it. Facebook seems really hollow at that moment. God has designed life where we have to ask for wisdom to gain for some perspective. How can I have joy in suffering? And so there are certain things that God will teach us as we read and as we seek Him. Say, God, will you teach me wisdom? God, will you help me? I'm, I'm tempting to be bitter and resentful. I feel anger in my heart. I'm in despair. I'm discouraged. Yet you have commanded me to count this as joy. I can't do that, God, unless you give me wisdom in this. Give me a foothold, something for me to hold on to. And some of the more foolish decisions of my life, I've put myself in a mountain climbing situation. Yeah, you know, you're, all your weight on your fingers and toes. And it hits you as you're on the side of the rock that everything of my life, the future of my life, is dependent on strength of my feet and fingers. It hits me. How crazy is that? But the, the key is to have three footholds at one time so that you can have your fourth hand or foot free to make the next foothold so that you can go foothold by foothold through and up the mountain and so what we have here is that we're in these times of sufferings and trials and challenges that God is saying there's things for you to hold on to there's some anchors for you and so you pray God give me wisdom help me to have a foothold something I can hold on to something I can count on And God, notice the promise here. He wants to give it. He wants to give you those footholds. He, if you ask God, He gives generously to all without reproach. He doesn't say, oh, silly one. Really? You need something to hold on to? There's not a reproach about this. He says, I want to give you something to hold on to. To carry you through. Ask for wisdom. But if you ask for joy and suffering, there's a condition on this. You can count this as joy. You can have a joyous perspective. You can have heart growth that comes on the other side of endurance if we ask for wisdom. And if, notice he says, as we keep on reading, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the winds. But a person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So what is this, this doubting aspect? He explains it in verse 8. He gives another phrase of it. This is what it means to have a double-minded person. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so let me ask this. We ask for wisdom, for joy, and suffering. And if we seek out and trust Christ above all pursuits. That's, that's the key right there. Counting it all joy is absolutely absurd going through any of these trials unless this one thing is there. We seek and trust Christ above all pursuits. If there are other pursuits above Christ, the trials 
will threaten them. The sufferings will threaten them. And we cannot count it joy. But there is one pursuit that this has been given to us in this world by God that no death, no cancer, no financial loss, no interpersonal struggle, no physical damage can threaten. And that is your relationship with Jesus Christ. It is the only thing, it is the only thing that God has given to us that will not pass away when we pass away. And so trials come and sufferings come to expose these passing uh, pursuits and and then we realize oh my goodness these these things are threatening me there's a, a dear beloved brother of mine that that i've been working with talking to and i've seen him lose his wife and i was ministering talking to his daughter and, and the daughter was sharing with me uh, he had come to church not long ago here for the very first time in every year and she shared with me after he lost his wife he believes in god but he no longer prays. Because what was the point in praying? He prayed for his wife. And his wife didn't get healed. So now, he's suffering, limping through life. The question remains, are you coming to God for God to service you? Are you here to serve God? In God's desires, in His hopes, in His heart, there is life and there is joy for you. He's not resigned us to a dismal life. But He does say, this joy comes at His terms. It comes where you allow God to cross your will. And there will be some things crossed in your life that have great things about it god-given joys god-given loves and delights this world is filled with them filled with many charms but they all point to him and if sometime you start loving the charm more than the charm giver then it's going to be a big time collision because those charms will pass and in the passing he's teaching us go to the giver of all good gifts we seek out and trust christ above all pursuits we live conflicted all the time do we not we have conflicted goals i weighed myself recently i currently weigh more now than i ever have in my life so it occurs to me it's the beard <laughs> it's the beard it occurs to me that I need to be more streamlined in my body and shape. But man, that food sure is good. Sounds really good until ice cream is offered. There's conflicts. Constantly. But Christ is the one goal, is the one pursuit that is to have no rival. Jesus said this way, hear my commands and you do not do them. It's like that person who builds his house upon the sand. The storms come, the sand washes it away, and the house collapses. 
But he who hears my commands and does them, obeys them, is like that man who builds his house upon the rock. And the storms will come, but the house remains. All of us are born with our houses on sand. Even as we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we're learning to put our hope in Him. And God will allow the storms to come. He will allow the trials and the adversities to come. And as they come, they sweep away bits of sand. But if we can take our, our house and shift it slowly with every storm unto the rock of God and His Word and pursuing Him and knowing the joy of Him, the delight of Him, then there is, as life goes on, a steady foundation that when trials come, because they keep on coming, I've noticed they don't stop as I get older. They accelerate, do they not? <laughs> I love talking to my older friends, and I talk to them about the challenges of my life. And I say, well, you haven't even dealt with the challenges of your physical health yet. Wait till you, that hits you. You're like, oh my goodness. They couldn't, they're going to keep on accelerating. But as that happens, with every child, God, I want you to be my hope. Teach me what it means for you to be my hope. Teach me for you to be the joy of my life that though I may lose my wife, I may lose my children, I may lose my job, I may lose lose these possessions, I lose my health, but God, may I never lose you. Lord, let you be my pursuit and that in these losing of these things, I get more of you in replace of it. Then God, I will count that as a plus. Paul said, I will count it all as rubbish compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ and his sufferings. This is easy to say, but it is so hard to endure. But I would say this to you. You're going to go through junk one way or the other. Why don't you let it count? Why don't you just let it count by letting Christ rule the day let me just share with you this definition of wisdom i think we'll see it through james i think we'll see it in proverbs we see it in jesus wisdom is the ability to see the beauty of god's authority in all things the ability to see the beauty the beauty of God's authority. Dear brother, singing about a good, good father in the midst of loss, his family, his wife, to see that there is still by faith God's goodness, his power has not been threatened. They are still there and if he has the power to stop or start whatever it is I'm frustrated about, frustrated about then maybe I can also credit to him the wisdom that is beyond me to have a reason for it all. To see the beauty of God's authority in all things. Good, bad, ugly. He's still good. He's still God. And He's still for us. Let's pray.